To clarify a couple of things, the specific version we covered here is the complete edition, the one that came out a little bit after the original one. And as an addendum, it's the first thing I want to talk about. See, it's actually funny to me because the original version of this game, <clears throat> this movie, was intended to be uh, about 20 minutes long, give or take, something like that. Not, not what you'd call a super long piece. Also, it looks like my niece has successfully bent my glasses. Not the first time she's done that. Yep, nope, that is definitely bent. Huh. 20 minutes. This is part of the FF7 compilation, which, if you're not familiar with it, was a great idea terribly executed, in my opinion. See, the whole point was, at the time, they really wanted to expound on their work, so there were three things they really pushed for. They pushed for FF7, Ivalice, and FF13, and they wanted all of these to have their own little self-contiguous things, right? And that way there would be this whole thing, blah, 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 and a lot of people have varied opinions on them, but the general consensus is the overall effort sucked. Now, in my opinion, that's mostly due to the fact that they didn't really know what they were doing and kind of screwed up at several times. Fortunately, we did get the occasional good thing coming out of this. Now, <clears throat> whether or not this movie qualifies is certainly up to you, and I've heard many people speak very ill of it over the years. However, one of the other things I've heard is that it's super awesome, even though it's kind of crap. Seriously, one of the most common uh, comments I hear about it is the fact that, despite the fact that it's, you know, kind of lacking in the plot department, it is, at the very least, very cool. <sighs> so, 20 minutes, which was expanded into 40 minutes, which was expanded to an hour and 40 minutes. That makes perfect sense. They also deliberately made a lack of explanation in the design of the film. So, if you want to know what's going on, sucks to be you. Now, the reason they did this, though, was because they really wanted this to be for fans who actually followed FF7. And that's fine. That approach is fine, and I approve of that approach for the most part. The problem is there's still elements that are unique to this movie, which weren't really well explained, that even FF7 fans couldn't get. Don't worry, they made an Ultimania, which you could buy for $29.99. I don't actually know how much it is, but you could buy that in order to learn more about what's going on. Or you could just listen to me, take your pick. Either way, this is also the very first introduction of Sephiroth's real voice actor, as opposed to Mr. Lance Bass, George Newbern, who some of you may remember as being Superman, but let's be honest, we all remember his best role, Nuge. Okay, joking aside, his role as Nuge in Final Fantasy X-2 is specifically what landed him this role, because they were impressed with him, and with good reason, he's a good actor, so, you know, credit to them. One of the biggest issues with this is the lip-syncing, or the lack thereof. Here's the problem. When they animated this, they made it so that the lip-syncing synced up with the Japanese voice acting. Duh. But then, when they translated it to English, well, they left. They didn't want to redo the lip-syncing. Okay, you know what? That makes sense. I understand completely. Then they told the translators, when they were translating it into English, they had to make the English dialogue kind of match the lip-syncing. That was a terrible idea. Now, I obviously am only speculating here, because I'm not sure what it would have looked like in the end, but 
I think I would have preferred just something that is completely off tempo with the with the lip syncing than the nonsense we got with the English translation, where some of the dialogue just kind of doesn't line up and doesn't make sense and is ridiculous, and of course gives us our infamous dilly dally shilly shally. But there's much worse examples than that. That's just the popular one. This also led to something almost worse, in my opinion: timing and tempo. See, English. I know this is going to sound strange. It does not have the same structure that Japanese does. So if I was to say the exact same sentence, perfectly translated from English to Japanese and back, the way in which I would emphasize what, where, and how, and of course the tempo of how I would speak would be completely different. But all the voice, uh, the lip syncing was designed around the Japanese dialogue, and so the mandate was the English dialogue had to match that tempo. This is the second reason the English dialogue is kind of crap here, because it's not only off in terms of just straight localization to try to match the lip syncing, but it's also blah because the tempo and timing is everywhere. So that was a problem. You can, of course, just listen to it in the original Japanese and just go with a sub if that's your preference. I know the subs versus dubs thing is a thing. I actually tend to prefer dubs. If given a choice, and also, oh my god. I tend to prefer dubs if given a choice when those dubs are actually good. These are not. No offense to Mr. Newburn, or, you know, any of the voice actors, really. Also, if we're being 100% blunt, this is in the era where Scora was still figuring out what voice direction was in English, as we've had many disastrous examples prior to now and will after this as well. So that's neat. So, right off the bat, we've got the Turks, we've got the Crater, and we've got some Genova cells. By the way, the way I'm going to talk about this is probably going to feel a little bit different from my usual approach. I don't know if that's actually true or not. I'm just warning you, because when I was doing this, I walked into this with the mindset of doing this as a lore run, because I've covered FF7 more than once on this show. So, more than twice. More than three times, if you really want to get down to it. And we can push that up to four times. But let's not pull technicallys. Instead, let's talk about Edge and the logic of Edge being a city that would be developed around the Midgar Ruins. After all, there's a lot of raw material there and a lot of infrastructure for power lines, roads, and sewage pipes, and all sorts of other things that make a city. So it makes sense to set up a city on the edge of Midgar. Go figure. Then there's Geostigma. The movie will bounce around trying to have people misunderstand and misexplain what geostigma is. I'm just going to tell you upright. It's just Genova cells. No, really, that's it. That is all it is. But the catch is, Genova cells, when they're injected into someone who is specifically prepped for it, can lead to that person being superhuman. Genova cells in most people lead to bad things. What actually happens is the body treats the Genova cells as if it's a foreign infection, which it is. So the body tries to get rid of it, and it fails at it because Genova cells are basically magic. So what ends up happening is the body's like, let's get rid of this, and it doesn't work. Let's get rid of this, and it doesn't work. And it just, what happens is the immune system effectively gets to the point where it's devoting all of its time and effort into getting rid of this, which leaves you horrifically open for infection from everything else. You know, the idea of dying to a cut because your body wasn't able to deal with it. You know, we're, we're dealing with that kind of a problem here. 
Similarly, this also leads to the, the black ooze kind of dripping out of them as the Genova cells are, you know, your body is trying to excise the Genova cells as fast and hard as possible. One thing that I don't quite understand, I actually uh, didn't pick up the Ultimania for this particular movie, sorry, is why exactly it's affecting Cloud. Because he had most of the pieces necessary to survive and withstand Genova cells, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why he is as superhuman as he is, both in the game and here. So I'm not actually 100% sure what exactly the, the variance there is. The biggest thing I could come up with is these Genova cells were not properly inserted. Let me, let me try that a different way. When the live stream came up to save the world at the end of FF7, in the not exactly great ending of FF7, one of the things that happened was the live stream also carried with it the Genova cells that had been infecting the live stream because the people who had contracted Genova cells and had died and gone to the live stream. So there were just contaminants just floating around in the live stream. Remember, it is a physical thing as well as a spiritual one. So that led to those bits of live stream infecting people with Genova cells. Maybe that, maybe their time in the live stream made it worse. Maybe the Mako bathing actually made it more infectious. Maybe it's just the fact that the method of infection was bad. You know, if you, if someone threw a cold virus at your foot, who cares? But if someone throws it down your throat, I actually don't know if that would work. But you get the general gist of what I'm going for here. Maybe it's the vector. I don't know. What I do know is that uh, Cloud is broody, dark, and emo, and goth, and all those things that Cloud absolutely is not. This is not necessarily the beginning of this particular era of Cloud, but this is something that caused such a <sighs> issue, both with public perception and with fan backlash, that several of the creators had to repeatedly tell people, don't worry, in FF7R1, the remake... Um, Cloud is going to be his usual goofy self. And he was. Actually, I think they did an excellent portrayal of Cloud, so kudos there. But this film is not that. Now, I've heard some people give this film a bit of credit, uh, a little bit of leeway on the whole broody Cloud thing, because, well, he's having survivor's guilt pretty badly, actually. And he's brooding and dark and horrible because he let Eris die. Spoilers, and because... You know, he just, uh, everything went wrong, and it's, it's, it, no, it's, it's about Eris. It's all about Eris. Okay. You know, I, I suppose that is pretty horrible. I can't argue against that. The problem is, he doesn't come across as, like, someone who's, I, I, I don't know, he, he, I don't buy it, you know? I feel like, rather than being some tortured soul who has this horrible past, he just strikes me as a guy who's just kind of sleepwalking through life. However, it is worth noting that that is exactly what he's doing. So their portrayal is accurate, it's just, I don't like it. What do you think? Moving on. So, uh, we see the three remnants. Next characters were introduced to. We have Yazu, which is named actually for a small stream or a river, which follows along a much larger river, very apropos. He, ha he is representative of Sephiroth's allure and mystery. We have Laws, he's the big guy. He is representative of Sephiroth's strength and emotional instability. And we have Kadaj, whose name means incomplete. He represents his hatred and his insanity. The three pieces of Sephiroth. Or, to be slightly more accurate, 
These are three compilations of Genova cells that have bundled together into amalgams of what could be considered people based off of other people's memories and, and feelings of Sephiroth, to be slightly more accurate. It gets a little convoluted, just bear with me. Let's break this down simply. Yazu is alien Sephiroth. Laws is child Sephiroth. Kadaj is puppet Sephiroth. Because all three of those are aspects of who and what Sephiroth was during his run. Another interesting factoid that I found interesting, and by factoid, I mean speculation interpretation. One of the things that made Sephiroth work very well was the fact that he was a horror movie monster. You know, the, the thing that you don't see. He was Jaws in Jaws, right? And that's how he was presented and utilized in the narrative, and it worked very well for adding to the mystique and serving in the overall point of the story. Kudos. These three are also horror movie villains. It's just, they're a different type of horror. While Sephiroth was that unknowable, unseeable thing that's just over on the distance and is absolutely annihilating everything in its path, and you just see the devastation left in its wake, these three are a child with a gun. I've actually talked about this concept recently in more than one work, actually, but the child with the gun is uniquely terrifying because of the very fact that they both have a deadly weapon, and have absolutely no idea of the consequences or ramifications of using it. They are unpredictable to a severe degree, because you just can't tell what they might do, even on accident. That makes them so terrifying. This is further emphasized because the movie goes out of its way constantly to emphasize how superhuman they are, which makes sense. They are basically walking Genova cells. Actually, in the story right before this, Kadaj uh, literally emerges and takes on the figure of someone that, I forget her name, knew. Because that's another thing Genova can do. It can restructure and take upon the appearance of dead loved ones. That's actually directly referenced in FF7. Oh yeah, by the way, these three are two weeks old. In case you thought I was being facetious. So, we have our first action sequence. I'm going to go and be real with you guys for a second. A lot of this movie is action sequences. And I don't really have a lot to say about most of them. I... I don't want to bow out of discussing them. It's just there's so little for me to talk about in most action sequences unless there's something really well done or really well crafted or some kind of symbolism or whatever. It's just a cool action sequence. They're really cool, and let's be honest, the action sequences really are the meat of this movie. This is here to see cool and flashy stuff and also have a bit of fan service. So, no judgment. Regardless... We have the motorcycles, because of course they have motorcycles, Cloud and his Fenrir, and the other three in there, whatever those things are, the diesel motorcycle, I don't know what the heck they are. They also show the ability to summon these random wolves. Why? Now hear me out for a second. There's an obvious wolf motif, ignoring the fact that Cloud's frickin' motorcycle is called Fenrir. There's also the wolf, which shows up several times in the narrative, which... Several people have argued res res reflects either Cloud himself or Eris, but I personally think is actually more representative of Zack. And we see that he's got that lone wolf thing, which is where that phrase comes from, going against him. And that's part of what the character arc he has with regards to this film. Okay. But why can they summon wolf enemies? Wolf enemies. It's the power of Genova. Okay, look, Genova can do a lot of things. It is, it is magic. It is wee, but com sending out random enemies based on its own cells is not something I don't think I have ever seen it do. And before or since, actually. So where the heck does this come from? 
And ignoring the continuity issue, why? In my opinion, the two major scenes where they just decide to summon wolves, the summoning of wolves doesn't change anything or do anything or add anything. They're not interesting to fight. They are nameless enemy mooks to be mowed through. They cause a slight damage to Cloud, who is actually losing the fight at the beginning of this movie because he has no idea what he's doing and he's out of practice. And, you know, well, let's be honest, the real reason is because he hasn't found his self-confidence yet. But that's it. Just have him lose to Yazoo and Laws. That's not hard. And then, you know, Kadaj calls him off and, okay, cool. By the way, the pacing in this movie is all over the place. And the narrative likes to jump forward and back in the timeline several times. So, that's neat. One of the things that several of the creators of this said is flat out, we don't know how to make movies, so we're not going to. We're going to make a video game cutscene. <sighs> the problem with that is video game cutscenes usually have things to get in the middle of those cutscenes. And you can honestly tell where you could just feel like, okay, and now you get control back and you play for a bit, and then the next cutscene plays. Like, it feels like it's there, right? Anywho. <clears throat> this then let cuts to... The appeal of the... Oh, I already talked about that. Sorry, sorry. Barrett, who's discovered oil. <laughs> Guys, we need to be more uh, family-friendly and more environmentally conscious. I've got an idea. Let's drill for oil. Ahem. This leads to Reno and Rude, who are a very common uh, person. This is also the second take on the Turks. The severely more positive, you know, semi-joking kind of whitewashed version of the Turks. As I discussed in multiple of my runs of FF7, the Turks before you leave Midgar and the Turks after you leave Midgar might as well be two completely separate characters. I have theorized as to the whys and wherefores of what, what made this happen, but it is an undeniable aspect of their character. Make of that what you will. This is the second half, the post-Midgar Turks, which makes sense, because this is after Midgar, but... They come across as literally comic relief, especially Reno, who is constantly the butt of jokes. This is totally contrasted by Rufus. I love Rufus in this. It's a, he's, I honestly think he's one of the better aspects of the entire movie. First of all, he's in a wheelchair, suffering from geostigma, of course. How did he escape? Well, there was a hatch that was built into there that they don't even bother to explain in the film, because you don't care, he's alive, shut up. I have to admit, that kind of amused me. He's the one who built Edge, by the way. Not with his own two hands, but he's the one who set it up and funded it. He also funded the WRO, the World Regenesis Organization, over in Dirge of Cerberus. In short, Rufus is arguably a more interesting character after FF7 than during, and he doesn't have as much screen time as I would have liked. I always felt like that was going to, that was building to something, you know? What it's building to, well... Rufus is definitely more of a force for good post-FF7 than he was during FF7. We'll see what they do with him in the remake, because he doesn't really show up in R1, so we'll see in R2. Uh, which, by the way, obviously, as of recording this, that's not out yet. In fact, we don't have a release window for R2 at this point, so I have no idea when that's coming out. Anyways, but what, I, what really struck me is that he's still definitely a politician. He's still someone who is actively keeping things close to the chest, you know, hiding his cards kind of a thing and making sure that nobody knows what he's thinking or how he lies to Cloud at least two times during this meeting and lies to everyone else constantly. He is still a manipulator and a schemer. He just is a force for good. 
I think that's one of the reasons I like his character so much, because that's a rare character type. Someone who is a Lex Luthor for good. Another thing I want to mention, though, here. I say that, you know, he's a force for good. A theory that me and my friend had for a while there is that Rufus, while he did want the world to be good, he wanted it to be good so that he could rule it. He just wanted a good world to rule. Instead of being nice and big and overt and standing on top of a giant throne, which everyone could see you, instead he's ruling from the shadows, quietly and carefully, manipulating and funding everything so that he is the real power behind the cities and the energy and the infrastructure and the military. Right? Food for thought. Of course, we'll never know because... Spoilers, but anyways. So, Rufus is awesome. This leads to Cloud, who is sick. Duh. And for some reason we find out that he left all his materia in a box in a chest in a church. Unsecured. You know, that's... Like, that's really dangerous, right? That is amazingly dangerous. One of the materia in there is a summit for... A summon for Bahamut Sin. Marlene could have pulled that out and used it. Anywho, this then leads to uh, a couple other scenes. You know, um, Rufus is awesome. Again, I hate to rehash that. He's talking to a mega superhuman who is very unstable and who has the power to kill him instantly if he screws up. He never flinches. He actually talks down to Kadaj like he's a child. I, I just really like that aspect of his personality. I, I hate to keep comparing Rufus to Lex Luthor, but there's a lot of vibes there. Anyways, this then leads to the Laws and Tifa fight scene. Uh, there's a lot of fight scenes. I think I already mentioned that. It's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, the music kind of isn't my thing, but I really like how they present it. Uh, it's a little bit too slow-mo-y, but... Tifa and beating the ever-living crap out of Laws is actually quite satisfying, and she is an excellent, uh... I was going to say monk. I'm going to take that back. She is an excellent martial artist, because I do distinguish between monk and martial artist. Sabin is a, mar is a monk. He has basically magic key, or whatever you want to call it, that he can use. Yang, from FF4, that's a martial artist. He does not have magically empowered abilities and the ability to shoot key blasts and heal people. He is a very good fighter with bare fist, just like Tifa. Whether Tifa or Yang is better, that's a good question, although Tifa does hold her on on laws pretty well. And then he gets back up and he beats the crap out of her instantly, because, well, the point is, as, as I mentioned several times, is the remnants are legitimately very superhuman. It's going to be a recurring element, and it's actually a plot point, believe it or not. Or at least a character point. Also, now they get the materia, so, hey, good job on unsecuring that. Yeah. I do like how Laws is actually just, oh, God, gross, when it comes to the flowers growing in there. Since anything of Genova would probably find something so purely of the planet to be offensive. And vice versa, if we're being honest. Uh, you know, Eris calling Sephiroth just plain wrong is probably a similar thing as to Laws calling the flower bed. You know, ugh. Anyways, this then leads to uh, Reno and Rude being awesome. There's a weird scene. I don't have much to say about it. The remnants get the materia. Oh, yes. 
Dilly dally. Shilly shally. The greatest lines of dialogue ever. Okay, obviously I hate that line. I get what it means. And this is why I'm, I'm of such of two minds here. Because I don't enjoy Cloud in this film. I don't. But I can intellectually get Cloud in this film. And that's why I'm of such a weird minds on this. I don't want to excuse it. Because it's just, ugh, really? And this film has so many issues. Like, again, I'm not reviewing this, because that's not what these are. But this this film, if I was reviewing this, would get quite a few negatives. But Cloud meandering is exactly what he's portrayed as. He saved the world. He beat the day. He got the girl. That would be Tifa. Now what? Everyone else has moved on with their lives. And as we find out in other compilation works, Yuffie has been regularly keeping in contact with everyone. She's become the glue that keeps the various party members together. So that's cool. I'm with that. And, you know, Sid's off inventing and discovering new things. Cole, you know, the oil that Barrett mentioned. Um, Vincent's, well, he's still kind of looking around, but well, he, he hasn't done much and won't until his game, which is actually after this. Um, Tifa's trying to do the best she can and being supportive of Cloud since, you know, one true love and all that. We don't actually know what... Uh, well, I guess Reeve is actually involved with generating the WRO at this point in time. I'm not sure what Nanaki slash Red 13 is up to at this point. But the point is, everyone's kind of moved on. Cloud just sort of spun his wheels. Because he didn't know what to do with himself. And, of course, because he felt guilty for letting someone he cares about die. It's also mentioned, not in the film, that one of the things he's also having trouble with is he's still trying to figure out how many of his particular feelings about Eris, both romantic and as a friend and effectively as a brother, are his own, and how many of those were from Genova, from Zack, and from... So he's still he's still dealing with a mess, and I want to give the guy credits, it's just I don't enjoy it. So, he goes off, the kids are kidnapped, so that's awesome, and... Oh, right. And then we cut to Kadaj, who is spreading his Genova cells to all the kids, which uh, is not quite as creepy as it sounds. It's pretty bad, though. It also makes perfect sense. Hear me out. Sephiroth wants as many Genova cells as possible because he's working towards a goal. Genova, if you can call it to be a thing that has a want... You know, in the same sense that a flower wants to grow towards light, Genova wants to have to spread as much as possible, to infect and infest as far as possible. And of course, Kadaj wants to have his basically slaves. In fact, what he uses them as is body shields. He does this twice, uh, once in the immediate following scene, and once when they go to Edge, to the monument. Anywho, <clears throat> Cloud is here for the kids. There's a bit of a fight. It's it's an alright fight. It's got decent pace and very good choreography. It's probably one of the better choreographed fights. I do have to comment here on the weapons they use. First of all, this is when Laws really starts to show off his haste attack. They actually had to invent a new rendering method just to make this show properly, where he you know blurs and then shows up in a new place and does a thing. It's a really cool ability, and I kind of wish we saw more of something like that. But the problem is, anytime you add a speedster you have added someone who is overpowered. There's a reason the Flash is very high tier. Anywho, he uses the Dual Hound, the name of his weapon, the Fist Weapon, which is also very cool. I, li I like unarmed fighters in general. 
But the one I really want to talk about is the Velvet Nightmare. That's the name of the gun blade that Yazoo uses. Yes, it is a gun blade. It is a sword thing that shoots with apparently infinite ammo. I don't know. Let's, let's just let that one go. There's so much physics defying in this movie, it's hard to even get, know where to start. I wish I liked that weapon more. In fact, it seems like it would be the coolest weapon in here. It's not. You know why? Because it doesn't do anything. Yazoo shoots that thing constantly. You know how much damage it does? See, if that was treated more of a deadly, serious weapon, like, oh, I don't know, a gun, then that would be horrific, right? Cloud constantly having to try, stay ahead, and ensure that he is ready to block the gunshots, and, like, even if one got through, it would be very damaging. But no. No, it's, it's a pea shooter. Pew, pew, pew. Cloud also manages to fight all three of them and do a decent job, which is in contrast to him fighting two of them at the beginning of the film and getting, you know, owned, basically. I just point that out because that's, again, the point. But then Vincent shows up, who is even more superhuman than they are, and he manages to bail him out. This then leads to a really weird exposition scene, which is between Cloud and Vincent, also involves Marlene, and also involves part of the conversation that happened between Cloud and Tifa several hours prior to this, or days, probably, given how far away Midgar is from the ancient forest. It, it, was a, it, it does some time-hopping, is what I'm trying to say. Most of what's discussed is actually most of what I've already told you, hence why I don't have much to say about this scene, because I already discussed Geostigma and all that. This is also when we find out Genova's head. It's actually just a chunk of Genova cells. Probably the single biggest chunk of Genova cells left standing that hasn't been absorbed into some kind of intelligence, like the remnants. It, of course, makes perfect sense that that would be such a big point of significance because anyone who could have that many Genova cells could use it to manifest something a lot bigger and stronger, like, I don't know, a weapon, for example, or maybe something even deadlier. There's also a really great line. Cloud says, are sins ever forgiven? Vincent's response, I've never tried. It's a good line. We also find out that Vincent doesn't have a phone. <laughs> Just keep that in mind for a minute from now. So they use the kids as body shields. They summon the dogs again. I don't know why. Moving on. Kadage dislikes Sephiroth, which actually makes perfect sense, because Kadage is basically Cloud's inverse. Not opposite. Inverse. Um, he's super pro-Genova, but he also is, you know, f very um, evil. But he is still very messed up in the head, barely cognizant as an individual, and has a big beef with Sephiroth, and of course is constantly doing Sephiroth's will, because he is a puppet, just like Cloud was. Anywho. So, would you believe that almost half the film is left after this point? I wouldn't, because only half of this page is the last half of the film. This is kind of the problem I mentioned earlier. So we have the fight with the minions, then the fight with the Turks, then the fight with Bahamut, then the fight with the motorcycle, then the fight with Kadaj, and the fight with Sephiroth. And that's the rest of the film. I do have a couple things to talk about, but as you might imagine, we're just going to rapid fire through this. So first of all, they summon Bahamut. Why? I mean, at least Bahamut being summoned makes sense, because it's from a materia, but what is accomplished by summoning Bahamut into the situation? 
Now, Kadaja at one point says, Oh, what fun! Who should we summon next? So it feels like the motive is literally just a kid playing with a gun. That lines up a little bit, but from a narrative perspective, so much time is spent on Bahamut, and it's several minutes, that I just, I, it feels like padding more than anything else, especially since so many of the other fights, both before and after, are far more interesting. Which leads me to one of my favorite bits from the movie, actually. Reno and Rude versus Yazoo and Laws. Now you're probably thinking, okay, Laura, they have to be hilariously outmatched. And you're absolutely right. And that's kind of what I like about it. We see that Reno and Rude are really good. Like Tifa good. You know, they're, they're top of the line. They're practically superhuman. But they're not actually superhuman. So what happens is they struggle and strive to barely keep up with the two, culminating in this great scene where, as a duel a hit, they manage to knock back Laws and smack Yazu back several, you know, like ten feet on the ground. And they're like, yeah! Then Laws charges them and basically does a bull rush charge, shoulder charge, right into them and knocks them back about 150 feet. But that makes sense, and that's exactly how that should be. They can't beat them. At least not hand-to-hand. Anywho. <clears throat> so, Vincent shows up, has probably one of the better lines of the movie. Where can I get a phone? <laughs> I love that. But, no, I'm kidding. The actual best line of the entire film. A good son would have known. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I hate to keep gushing about how awesome Rufus is here, but remember, unlike Reno and Rude, who are top-of-the-line, combat-capable combat military specialists, who are, in the absence of, like, the Genova people, would probably be two of the strongest people on the frickin' planet. No, he's a dude in a wheelchair with some geostigma, and yet he manages to stand off against Kadaj multiple times, and in this case actually literally owns him. I shouldn't say literally. Defeats. That's the word I want. He literally defeats him. A good son would have known. Toss. And he just had to do that first. And then, in a very Rufus mood, he just jumps over the edge and starts going down with his little shotgun shooting at the thing. And for one of the only times in the whole movie, a bullet actually does something when it damages the, the, the box with the Genova cells in it. The reason I love that so much is it's such a Rufus move to decide, you know what, I'm going to jump over this building. My, my, my employees will deal with the left, with the rest of that. And they do. Elena and Zong, Zong, Zong? Oh god, they pronounce it in FF7 R1. I don't remember what, how they pronounce it. Um, I think it's Sung. But anyways, they catch him. <laughs> but there, there wasn't planned. It was just, yeah, okay, wee. <laughs> I mean, they were probably nearby just like Reno and Rude were. So this then leads to the Bahamut fight. I actually really have nothing to say about the Bahamut fight. You'd think I would. Symbolism, right? Here's the thing. The Bahamut fight is the fan service fight, really. It's one of two fan service fights. Because this is the fight which is all the party being back. You'll notice most of the party members of FS7 have basically been absent this entire game. This is when they show up and make what is effectively a cameo. They show up here, they show up later to discuss what Kadaj is and, and give some exposition during a fight scene while Genova music plays, which is just really, really weird storyboarding. And then they show up during the ending, and that's basically it. 
But here we see them, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you this, it's actually kind of cool seeing them in action. It is. Then they beat Bahamut, you know, they go through the thing, Eris is the last one to send him forward, he defeats Bahamut in one shot. Sure. <laughs> Maybe he's stopping a lone wolf, but at the same time he's obviously the, the heaviest hitter of the party, so I suppose that's kind of a whatever. Which leads to what I think is probably the coolest fight in the movie. The motorcycle foo fight. Where Cloud on the Fenrir and Yazoo and Laws on their bikes fight each other on their bikes and with their bikes. In fact, my favorite maneuver in the entire film, and I wish I was making this up, is this thing where Laws is going over, slams his arm into the ground, causing a rift as it's, you know, trying to slow down. And he's still got the, the motorcycle, like, grabbed in between his legs. So the only thing keeping him up off the ground is his arm, which is now currently in the ground. And then using that as a lever, he flings the motorcycle from his legs as a projectile after Cloud. <laughs> it's, I love it. It's so ridiculous. I absolutely, I'm not even joking. I love it. It's a good fight. It's enjoyable. Um, my favorite part about it, though, is when Reno and Rude, who now have set up some explosives and are... Well, they beat them. <laughs> Cloud defeats them in a cool fashion. Rude and Reno defeat them in an awesome fashion. Because they do exactly what they should do. They use tools and strategy to outmaneuver and defeat someone or someone's substantially stronger than them. Turks for the win. This then leads to the live stream, which is being pushed out by Eris, which can heal Geostigma. Remember that Geostigma is just a collection of Genova cells that are in your body. So, huh? Admittedly, this makes no sense to me, really. I, I know it's a weird thing to call out, but of all of the things, like the live stream should not be able to heal Genova cells because the Lifestream can and has been infected by Genova cells. If, if the Lifestream could heal Genova cells, then it wouldn't have been a vector for getting those Genova cells into people and causing the geostimic crisis to begin with. Because they, they wouldn't have been there because they'd been in the Lifestream, and the Lifestream purified them, or deleted them, or destroyed them, or whatever it actually did, right? So that doesn't make any sense. And I, and I know what you're going to say. Because the only thing I could come up with is that Eris's direct involvement, because she's still conscious within the Lifestream, was what allowed her to use it in order to heal people. I'm not sure that lines up either, to be completely honest. I suppose it kind of does. Uh, basically burning out the infection by destroying the infectious cells is about all I've got there. I don't know what else to say about that. It, I, it was kind of necessary because they have to get rid of the geostigma, otherwise they don't really have a solution. And they wanted to remove Genova from the board, which you know, was kind of a thing too. I don't know. This leads to the Genova th song as Cloud and Kadaj fight. And I'd like to say it's an awesome fight. It's a good song. I don't like it that much. Because, I mean, it's sort of whatever, especially in the wake of several of the awesome fights we've had. At this point, I'm almost getting fighted out. But like I said, there's that weird interrupting scene where they decide to exposit over the fight with Kadaj and dis discuss what the remnants actually are, because this is the perfect time to give exposition about your film. I know I've actually talked before about having action over your exposition, but this feels like a little bit more than what I was discussing. 
It's worth noting that Cloud, who has just defeated Yazoo and Laws, now defeats Kadash. Relatively easily, I might add. Which makes sense. Cloud is probably the heavy. He's the Wonder Woman, or the, the Superman, or whatever you want to call it, of this particular setting. So that actually lines up perfectly well. It's just, you know, lack of confidence, issues, blah, blah, blah. But then the big man shows up. Okay. I like the Sephiroth fight, but I want to defend myself on that. Because it's not just fanboying, okay? It's not just because Sephiroth is cool. I do actually think it's one of the better done fights in, in the entire film. Probably, I'd say, the second most well done fight in terms of sheer choreography. But ignoring the fight itself, what's really, really cool is the way he's presented. Kadaj is falling eats the, the the Genova cells, which then merge with him, which give a large enough concentration of Genova for Sephiroth to immediately take control and re-manifest. You know, honk. But as Cloud jumps down and hits him, hits Kadash so hard, it makes a massive indent on the metal plate he's standing on. And Sephiroth is left standing there, completely unfazed. He then manifests the Masmune, or the Masamune if you prefer, as his chosen weapon, and then just sends Cloud flying. That moment was such a well-done moment. I, I, I Forgive me for describing it so literally, but I wanted it fresh in your mind. The, the fall, the descent, the, the impact, the silence that followed it. It's been a long time, Cloud. The weapon manifesting, him attacking Cloud. The, the way that is directed and presented, that's awesome. It's a great moment. He then exposits for a bit about how he's going to turn the planet into a ship, which he's going to use to go find other worlds, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure how much of any of that I buy, and frankly, I'm not sure how much I care. The actual writers of this film flat out said that his only motivation was revenge against Cloud, and that was the only thing that allowed him to stay conscious in the live stream. I'm not sure I believe that either, and that's straight from the creator's mouths. You know how that works, death of the author, blah, blah, blah. The fight itself is very... It's actually really short. It's only six minutes long. Just under six minutes, actually. But there's a lot of physics-defying nonsense. Gotta, I mean, they literally fly for several sections of it. But I'm okay with that, because what the Sephiroth fight is is a combination of the styles of fighting of every fight up until this. They throw debris at each other and use the terrain as part of it. They uh, fly around and just bounce off of each other. They have the very up-close-and-quarters, very quick-hits thing. They do the rotating-around terrain in ways that obviously are not physically possible thing. Every fight that has been in this game up until... Wow. In this movie up until now is represented in the styles of that they bounce between during this fight. It's also interesting that Sephiroth massively outclasses Cloud, and that's apparent even from the very beginning. Remember, Cloud's the Heavy. This is, well, this is basically Wharf Effect, but this is uh, one of the ways how you can establish someone. You establish someone else, and then you have that someone else be absolutely smashed by the someone. Now, that's easy to screw up, see the Wharf Effect, but still, it is a valid method of trying to exposit. Sephiroth also... First of all, the song is, is amazing while we're on the subject. Very cool song. Um... He got, he doesn't breathe the whole fight. 
and he doesn't blink the whole fight, and he also never raises his tone the whole fight. They were trying to re-emphasize just how distant and alien he had become at this point, and considering what we're dealing with, is literally just a bundle of Genova cells which has manifested in an unwilling host, I suppose that makes sense. So they fight quite a bit. Um, there's a great bit where Sephiroth actually knees him in the chest, just to really show how much... Sephiroth is playing with him. He is absolutely toying with him. Uh, this is obviously a mistake, and is obviously very stupid, but kind of had to happen, because the problem is when you establish a character is so strong, like Sephiroth is, you need to really come up with some unique circumstances to allow them to be defeated. And that requires very careful thought and effort and storyboarding and writing, which this does not have any of that. Well, maybe the storyboarding. What instead happens is we fall back on the old FF7 st uh, standby. Limit breaks. <laughs> Anyone even remotely familiar with FF7 will tell you that limit breaks are a thing. Anyone intimately familiar with, familiar with it will tell you that limit breaks are a thing in lore. Not to the extent of trances, of course, but still, it is a thing. So... Sephiroth plays with Cloud, which pushes him to Limit Break, which allows him to defeat Sephiroth, because that's actually the entire point and idea, conceptually, of what a Limit Break is. Good job, Seph. I actually was paying attention this particular time very, very carefully. I watched the fight twice, because it's awesome. And, what? Don't judge me. Sephiroth should have won at least twice throughout the fight, if he had decided to go ahead and do so. He didn't, because he was toying with him. Not really a great idea, Seth. But again, he had to lose somehow. This also leads to Cloud saying, You're an idiot. I don't just value something. I value everything. Now that's interesting. Because, while it's debatably true, the fact is, I think Seth took that to heart. Because that comes up in FF7R1. Oh, spoilers, sorry. Anyways, hmm... <clears throat> So then Cloud dies, I guess. Then he comes back, and everything's happy. The end. I don't have much to say about the ending, because it just kind of ends. <sighs> I suppose my opinion of this film has simultaneously gone up and down, having gone through it with analysis. But obviously I've seen this film before. And my overall opinion, if I was to just force to, you know, if Yazoo put a gun to my head, well, then I'd laugh because he can't damage me. But if, you know, someone put a sword to my head, well, then I'd have to answer them that my overall bullet point opinion on this film has not changed. The fight scenes are awesome and there's some good fan service, but the plot is just kind of nonsense and the construction of the narrative is not great. I also dislike what they do with the cloud, even though it does make sense. And that's reinforced having gone through it again. I can apologize for a lot of this film because there is some obvious heart involved, but the overall style and approach is so unusual, I just found myself going more often than I probably should. It also probably says something that, despite the fact that this is almost a two-hour film, I only had a page and a half of notes to talk about. I hope, nevertheless, that you have enjoyed my thoughts on this film, and I hope to see you guys next time. Nah. Okay, now that everyone else has clicked away, I'm going to spoil Final Fantasy VII Remake Episode One. This is your warning. I'm not going to put up a graphic. This is a nice big audio warning. If you're listening to the MP3, hit stop. If you're watching the video, hit stop. Okay? Okay. So, 
FF7R1 is a sequel to this. That's the big spoiler. The big spoiler of FF7R1. I'm still not sure what I think of that. I've talked about that a lot. I've, I talked about it during my review of it. Had a nice discussion with Mike and Rax after the fact. I've discussed it in the Discord. But to this day, I'm not sure what I really think of that concept. It's going to depend on what they do with it. But I have to admit, there is an idea there I enjoy tremendously. Sephiroth, as a villain, works okay. But what I like more is Sephiroth as an environmental hazard. Rather than being an individual who needs to be opposed, it's more like a hurricane that needs to be survived or endured. And that does seem to be the kind of approach they're going with. Especially since he's mostly talking about he wants to endure and live past when the world itself is destroyed and talking about the greater galactic livestream, which I've brought up a few times in my various lore runs and works. He, there's also, thanks to the Ultimania for FF7R1, we do know that that is this Seph. Although there's actually like five Sephiroths in FF7R1, so let's just ignore that for a second. Point being, its status as a sequel is interesting. But again, there's one last thing I do like. Let's say we keep him as a villain. Okay. Alright, I'm with that. I think they either have to depower him, because we're, ar we're already at, as of this movie, nonsense levels of power. He had to be ridiculously stupid to be defeated here. He isn't defeated in FF7R1. Spoilers. He wins. He, he, we fight him and we defeat the battle, but then he just absolutely crushes us because he was, he wasn't even beginning to fight with us. He is so strong that we have, we reached the nonsense point three steps before we might encounter him in FF7R2. See the problem here? This, this, this is the Dragon Ball escalation problem, really. So you either need to dial him back down, which they could do, or you need to remove him from direct opposition. But if they dial him back down, which I would actually be in favor of, he can still be strong. I'm fine with him being super powerful. I liked FF7. But he needs to be dialed back from, I could take on the whole planet by myself, to, I'm the most powerful super soldier on the world. You know, there's a few steps there, right? I mean, the Sephiroth, as of this film, could probably have fought a weapon and won. By himself. Without even trying. So, what am I getting at? Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. One of the things I like most about the Ganondorf in Wind Waker, other than the fact that he actually has the beginnings of characterization, like most Ganondorfs do not have, is the fact that he lost. And because he lost, he learned. And he got better. He got smarter. He adapted and he moved forwards. There's actually only a few works of fiction that really do this idea, where the villains lose but they get better because of that loss. And I actually really like the idea of a Sephiroth who has been like, okay, I've lost twice. How do I do it the next time around? And I do have to admit, even though he is still whacked out powerful, he does seem to be a lot more careful in how he is operating. He does seem to have learned his lessons and is approaching things completely different in FF7R1. What do you think? Do me a favor and put like a spoiler tag though, just just to keep that distanced. You know, unrelated spoilers and all that. Either way, for real this time, I do hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I look forward to hearing yours. I'll see you next time.